Hello and welcome to Let's Talk Robotics. I'm your host, Nikki Rousseau, and it's my pleasure to introduce you to the robotics community in Australia. Today, I have the pleasure and honor of speaking with Colonel Robin Smith. Robin is the director of the Autonomous Systems Implementation and Coordination Office. He is also the recipient of two awards, the Conspicuous Silver Cross for Outstanding Achievement as the Staff Officer Grade 1 and Director Robotics and Autonomous Systems Implementation and Coordination Office, Futureland Warfare Branch, Army Headquarters, and he received the Order of the British Empire. Robin, welcome and thanks very much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks very much, Nikki. Robin, congratulations on being awarded the Conspicuous Silver Cross. Fantastic award. But tell us about being awarded the Order of the British Empire. Yeah, I was extremely fortunate to be awarded the uh, OBE in uh, the New Year's Honours List in 2012 for uh, work that I'd done uh, as part of a, a logistics planning role, uh, which involved uh, support to operations in the British military. And in that particular role, I'd led some of the early stage planning on the withdrawal from Afghanistan, which was planned in 2014, or at least the drawdown, uh, the significant drawdown, and also support to operations in Libya. So I guess they thought myself and my team did a great job and uh, I was nominated for award and it was extremely lucky that uh, the now King Charles, uh, then Prince Charles, uh, provided that award to me uh, in Buckingham Palace in front of my family. Congratulations. Thank you. You joined the British Army at the age of 18 as an electronics technician. Um, did you come from an army family? Uh, yes, actually. So uh, my uh, grandfather... Uh, was in the army as as was my dad. Uh, my dad was uh, also an electronics technician, a radar technician in the Royal Electrical and Mechanical Engineers, which is what uh, I ultimately uh, ended up joining. And uh, my grandfather had been um, first in the infantry. Uh, he was captured actually in the early stages um, of the British Expeditionary Force in a place called St. Valerie. Uh, so when Dunkirk was happening, there was also a British enclave in uh, a bit further south to a place called St. Valerie. Uh, he was part of the 51st Highland Division and uh, he was captured there and spent most of his wartime service in a Polish prisoner of war uh, coal mine, uh, as it turns out. So uh, on my mum's uh, side, uh, my grandfather, her father was uh, in the Air Force. Um, I think he forgave me for joining the army, but um, yeah. Uh, so yes, we do have something of a, in fact, my grandmother also uh, served in the Air Force. So we do have something of a military uh, background in the family. And your children, uh, do you think they're going to go into the uh, military? Um, I, th I think there's a possibility that my youngest daughter uh, will. Um, she is in cadets. Uh, she really loves it. Uh, my son, um, I, I think, less interested at this stage. But, you know, they're, they're both, both early teenagers. So who, who knows? I'll probably change their minds uh, between now and then. My daughter aspires to be an astronaut, having become a, uh, an Army helicopter pilot first. So she's aiming high um, and we'll see how we go. Oh, fantastic. I love that uh, ambition. You know, I come from a background where conscription army um, growing up in South Africa many, many years ago, that as soon as you turned 18, you'd have to go off to the army for two years. Um, other countries in the world, Israel is, is still like that. And I, I think I could always see people that have gone to the army as opposed to those that haven't. I think it does instill 
Um, look, you grow up, my opinion, any South African that once I left school, everyone would say, don't worry, the army will sort them out. The, the catchphrase was the army would do it. The poor army, what a responsibility. You have these delinquents and it's your responsibility to sort them out. Do you, um, just touching on the Australian um, military, is this something that kids do that they aspire to? Does the military have to go out and really um, try and get people to join or... Do you think they're people that just go like, this is my career? Yeah, I think, um, you know, the Defence Force works pretty hard on trying to recruit the right people. Um, and, you know, there's an ever-increasing uh, range of really technical skills. And I think that's something that um, Army is going through that sort of, uh, I guess, evolution right now. As we look ahead at some of the amazing equipment that's coming in, and, you know, we'll probably talk about robotics and autonomous systems later, um, the Army's workforce is getting more and more technical. Um, as is the rest of the world. So, you know, we're, we're in a sort of competition for talent. Um, and I think Army has always been seen something as the as the least technical. And I, and I think in some places that's fair. And in other roles, that's that's absolutely not the case. Um, so, you know, the, the Defence Force does recruit um, pretty strongly across all sort of capability spectrum. So, you know, people who are, are interested in in more uh, manual type tasks, all the way through to the really highly specialized technical, including languages and so on. So it's a really broad uh, place to work. And I think, you know, if you've got a an interest in serving, I think if you've got an interest in being part of a team, um, then the, uh, defense and in particular army is probably a good place to go. Yeah. And do they take people that have already um, so done qualifications, started a bit of a career and then decided they want to go into, listen, I just call it the army, but the cover blanket is military, of course. So uh, um, is that something that happens? Yes, absolutely. So I guess, you know, there's, there's a sort of full time element of the army and there's also the reserve part of the army. And, you know, you can join either um, and you can transition between the two sort of or multiple levels of commitment. So there's a sort of sliding scale of commitment all the way from full time right down into uh, a much lower level of, uh, of commitment. Um, and in terms of, you know, you can join straight from school all the way through uh, to, you know, joining much later, having fulfilled early parts of your career. And maybe you're looking for something of a, of a challenge that your current workplace isn't providing you. And you can commit uh, a certain amount of time to the army in this case um, and bring your skills with you. And indeed my team um, has a number of reserve soldiers in there and officers who, you know, we're really attracted to having them in the team because of the particular skills that they have. Uh, one, of, one of the officers in, um, in my uh, organization uh, is an academic primarily. Um, he served full time in the military, he left, he became an academic, he completed his PhD, he works at a uni and now he's come back into the army uh, on a reserve um, basis, but he brings with him that really rich computer science skill that I'm, I'm really highly interested in. So it's a very scalable offer. Um, and you know, if you want to dial your commitment right up, then you can. If you want to push it right back because of your family circumstances and so on, you also can. So it's extremely flexible. And I think that's the way uh, that defence and army in particular is going to be able to recruit the right people. That sounds so funny that you've got a flexible role in defence. I mean, it's it's in a bit of an oxymoron because you would think it's a rigid structure. You rock up there, you do what you need to do. Um, so that's fantastic. You spent 30 years... Um, uh, in the British Army, and then you transferred to the Australian Army. Of course, I'm a little bit accent deaf because I can't hear your accent because my accent is, you know, non-existent. Why did you decide to come here? Um, so 
my second to final posting in the British Army, I came to Australia to teach at the um, Australian Command and Staff College at Western Creek here in Canberra. And while we were here, my wife was doing uh, British Army Reserve Days also at the college. Uh, she was an education officer in the British Army. And um, while we were there, we became aware of a scheme where you they call it a lateral transfer scheme. So they recognize that um, previous learning and experience that you have, and you can transfer uh, across into the Australian military. I mean, in effect, you leave one and join the other, but they recognize that sort of position that you have and the skills that you So um, we obviously loved being in Australia. So uh, we both applied, we were both accepted. And um, then having completed the immigration uh, process, we then came back full-time in 2017. Don't tell me you were subjected to the immigration process. <laughs> Absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, it's... It's a joy that everyone has to enjoy if you're in <laughs> Australia. So, yeah, look, it, it it was as painless as it could have been, really. You know, having completed all the sort of uh, requisite selection for for the army, including a medical and so on, we then obviously had a job offer, and we were able to approach the immigration system with all of that. Uh, some, somewhat ironic that I passed the medical for the army entry, and then I had to have a medical for the um, you know the immigration. <laughs> immigration. But, uh, you know, that's that's the system, and so we we went through the system. <laughs> That's a different department, Robin, and they all have bills to pay. This is how I view it. I can speak from great experience in our, when we came here 27 years ago. So in terms of the transfer from one country to the next, was it easy? Were you accepted readily into the Australian Army? Um, any sort of problems there? Or was everyone very gracious and loved you? <laughs> well, I'm not sure about loved me, but... Um... <laughs> Look, it's a it's a fairly well trodden path. There's a number of people do that transfer every year, um, depending on the skills that the uh, that the army is looking for at the time. The British military um, is also changing in terms of its career model. So generally, um, soldiers complete 20 years of service and then leave. And so if you imagine you join the British Army at 18, at 38, you're leaving. Um, so there's a great opportunity then to pick up really skilled, really knowledgeable people and you know transition them into, um, into the Australian Defence Force, um, where we can use those skills, where we continue to serve to a compulsory retirement agency. So... Uh, for the full-time uh, workforce. So there's a great opportunity to, to to harness those skills. So I wasn't the first. Um, at times it felt like I was. <laughs> um, but um, no, I think, you know, uh, if you come with the right attitude, which is, you know, it's, it's uh, similar but different, uh, you as a person have to adapt to uh, that you know the same as taking on any new job you have to adapt to the new environment you find yourself in and um, I think if you work hard and prove your worth then then you're readily accepted like anybody coming yeah just a regular immigrant I do find that that was the case for us you have to assimilate um, maybe leave some of your bad habits at home and um, not have too many opinions on your new home to start off with because quite frankly you can be lucky you here Exactly. And we're both incredibly grateful. Well, all of us are incredibly grateful. Yeah. So you transferred to the Future Land Warfare branch and you wrote the first strategy on robotic and autonomous systems known as the RAS strategy. Um, tell us a little bit how this happened. Yeah. So um, I was a logistician in the British Army and I came across the Future Land Warfare branch and I was sort of expecting to work on sort of future logistics uh, concepts and so on. 
Uh, and then my director general asked me to write a RAS strategy. Um, I sort of had to ask him what he meant. Um, and uh, so uh, once it was clear what he wanted, you know, I've, I've got a master's degree in defense technology and I was an electronics technician. So, you know, I sort of set about doing some research uh, and trying to work out what I think Army wanted from a RAS strategy, as well as obviously what was, should be contained in it. And I think at the time, the thinking was was really evident that, you know, Obviously, I worked in future land warfare, um, and we had to understand um, what impact technology may have in the future, um, and to help provide a bit of direction and guidance on um, where there may be the best benefits for Army. And so, if we just orientate, future land warfare branch works within the land capability division. So they look ahead and set the demand signal for all of the equipment that actually buys, and all of the other elements of. Uh, capabilities such as and so on. And so the Future Land Warfare Branch sits at the sort of um, early stage thinking in the strategies and concepts phase of the capability lifecycle. So it was pretty clear to me that the RAS strategy needs to provide guidance to those uh, people who write future user requirements. And also the technology is still very much emerging. So I took a view that it would be very difficult to write a uh, detailed plan on exactly what was needed in what time frame and how it was going to be uh, ready for employment. So I took more of a thematic approach um, so that we could sort of say, hey, look, there's a bunch of benefits or offsets, as they're called in the in the strategy now, um, that uh, we may gain from uh, robotic systems with varying levels of autonomy, depending on the task. Um, and so uh, that that's the uh, approach that I took. And um, the first version uh, was out in, uh, I guess it was 2018, about a year after I arrived. Um, and then we we reissued version two, uh, a little over sort of refined, I a bit more, certainly in the implement. And in terms of writing strategies, do you consult with um, industry experts out there? Or like, how does this work? Yeah, so um, obviously I did a bit of research for myself. And then um, I, again, <laughs> wasn't the first to be thinking about this. And so you know, I was able to um, reach out firstly through the uh, Defence Science and Technology Group, who'd been doing some work um, in in that sort of area. And then, you know, in that typical kind of um, collaborative way, you know, got passed on to different people. I met um, Sue Key. Uh, she was working at CSIRO Data61 at the time. Um, and, you know, I then sort of found myself in the ecosystem that you live in right now, lots of people who had um, great insights, great views and great understanding of the state of the technology and where, where the benefits might come. And so uh, I think from a sort of external consultation, it was more informal. And then internally, um, there was more of a formal consultation where I asked Navy and Air Force uh, what they were doing and, and how that looked for them. Um, and as I say, with my other colleagues in the land capability division. So it sort of came together, I'd say, internally quite structured and quite um, organized and then externally uh, by opportunity. OK. And where does RICA sit in the structure of the Army? Yeah, so we're part of um, the, that um, future land. So Army headquarters, within Army headquarters, you have the land capability division. And then within the land capability division, there are nine different areas. One of those areas is the future land warfare branch. Um, and within the branch, we have a number of different subsectors. So we have uh, people, the Australian Army Research Centre, who look at the sort of 
trends in the world. They commission re academic research to support uh, questions that Army has around um, the future. And, you know, we're talking sort of 10 years or so ahead. Um, we have the Australian Army History Unit that helps us to learn from history because surprisingly enough, we've done some of this type of evolution, revolution or transformation before. So why, uh, what could we learn from that and, and why potentially we didn't follow through on certain things? Uh, then the RICO team sort of provides inject from uh, emerging technology. Um, how, does, how does emerging technology provide us an opportunity? And uh, say those offsets within the RAS strategy, uh, we also have a quantum strategy and we also have a power and energy uh, framework um, to to look at those different technology inputs. The three of us as groups then feed into the land force design team, and they're really the kind of key output of the future warfare branch. I'm probably getting in trouble for saying that, um, but they basically uh, do two key things. So one is they produce uh, a vision of how army is going to fight in the future based on the inputs from those other organisations within. Um, you know, how do we conceive that? You know, we will adapt the way that we fight and operate, and that's the land concept document, and also what the force structures might be. So how will we organize ourselves? Um, and that's the land operational concept document. So they're sort of nested. Um, and then, you know, they help to design the actual elements of army. So the, the brigade, the regiment, and all that sort of stuff um, all comes from the land. Um, and so we have something of a system that helps us to you know, think about the future, think about how we're going to fight, be influenced by those and create a vision of to fight. That then is helpful for the rest of the capability system who says, oh, okay, in insert future date, we want to be able to do this or army aspires to do that. Here's the range of equipment that we'll need to procure the type of skill sets that we're going to need to have and therefore the infrastructure and facility sustainment and so on that so there's a sort of coherent system there where army envisages future um, and then that informs the capability and so we sit at that front end of, of that process with the sort of future looking at in terms of military do the navy the air force and the army do they all have the same sort of office like a rico and do you all talk to each other yeah absolutely so um air force and navy uh and ourselves, you know, we, we regularly um, discuss what we are doing, uh, share data to see if there's anything interesting that they have discovered, uh, who they're working with in the sort of national ecosystem. We're all very uh, focused on where we can having technology made here in Australia. Um, in some cases, we co-invest in particularly promising technologies. And I've, I've got a, one project in particular in mind that I'm investing with, with uh, Air Force a can of UAS uh, opportunity. So yes, we, we you know we, we collaborate quite closely. Um, we're also very conscious of not overburdening, you know, smaller, medium-sized enterprises by making approaches to them. So we do tend to sort of uh, share data to, to understand you know, where they found the missing technology. The composition of your team and how big is it? So the team is growing at the moment. So um, we started off with myself and one other, um, and now there are um, 12 full-time and that number is growing um, almost by the day at the moment we're doing something of a recruitment drive so we have a, a blended workforce as I say so to uniform people both regular and reserve um, we have um, APS members um, helping us with some of the you know the key structural elements contracting commercial uh, communications in particular uh, project management um, and then we have uh, contractors um, where where we can only get that sort of skill set through a contract mechanism. And so um, the reason I say that we're growing is we have a, a, a project, all of Army's 
um, capability projects, in fact, defense capability projects have numbers. So there's a project land 135, completely meaningless to anybody other than <laughs> internally. But land 135 was approved by government um, earlier this year. And that allows uh, us to create a defense autonomy center land. Um, so focused on land autonomy. Um, and um, that's part of uh, the RICO team. And so we are now in the process of recruiting and standing up. And that LAM135 gives us funding over the next 18 years um, to enable us to uh, invest in this sort of promising technology, solve some of the unique elements of land autonomy. So you know, autonomy in the air and in the water is simpler, still not easy, but it's simpler than land autonomy. And anybody that works in land autonomy would, would vouch to that. And so you know, we were able to approach government and say, we have a requirement to you know, undertake long-term both research, development, and understanding of the application of autonomy. They agreed and they funded the program, uh, which is really promising. I'm also um, quite motivated uh, as currently in the future, around about in the early part of next the next decade, um, there is a commitment for around seven to $11 billion for uncrewed systems. Um, and uh, the key question that we have to answer between now and then is what do we want to do with that money? So, you know, what organizations, what force structures, how are we going to fight when we access to that type of technology? What type of technology do we want? And so we're undertaking part of the contracted workforce. We're undertaking an operational analysis campaign to see how we might transform the way that army organizes itself, the way that it might fight with robotic system uh, varying degrees uh, to answer that particular question so that we we ensure that we approach uh, government in the future with a coherent view of what's the most compelling mix of human and teams um, to give us that asymmetric advantage so anyone listening to this uh, podcast today wanting to join the rico office like how do where do they find this information yes yeah, so if they go to uh, researchcenter.army.gov.au uh, forward slash Rico, uh, they'll be able to find the Rico team there and there's uh, an opportunity to to contact us. There's also the documents that I talked about earlier, our strategy, the quantum roadmap and so on. They're all on there along with some uh, great videos from some of the concept demonstration work we've done. Over Fantastic. So you touched briefly on um, sovereign capability. Um, I had the pleasure of being at the Chief of Army Symposium, which was held in Perth this year. It's an absolutely fantastic experience. So thank you very much for um uh, facilitating that I was also allowed to go. I actually went and did a security talk after that in um, Sydney and I, I very proudly stood up and said, well, I was there and it's by invitation only. A fair question, but, you know, my role in robotics. Um, what's the purpose of the symposium? So the, the Chief of Army Symposium is, is, uh, is sort of four events wrapped up into one, really. Uh, this year's topic was adapting army. So um, the, the Chief of Army is focused very much on people, and technology in that order. Um, and so he had his sort of conference uh, happening uh, in a sort of typical conference style, discussing you know, challenges around workforce, recruiting, retention, technology, upskilling, uh, the role of innovation and so on. Um, so whilst that was running, I uh, was responsible for running three other events on, on his behalf. So we ran the Army Quantum Technology Challenge, which is an annual event which supports our quantum roadmap. Uh, we put a call out to industry around quantum computing and simulation, uh, sensing and quantum communications and encryption. Um, the 
academic or industry partners come back, we select some, and then that's their pitch fest uh, culminates at the quantum technology. Uh, and this year we had some uh, really fantastic pitches uh, about where quantum technology is going uh, from a sovereign perspective. It also, uh, another event that is run there is the Army Innovation Day, a similar idea. We ask uh, industry and academia to pitch against some, a challenge statement. Uh, this year's challenge statement was how do we counter robotic and autonomous systems? Um, and, you know, anyone following any kind of uh, international media would have seen, you know, obviously the impact of uh, uncrewed aerial systems in the Ukraine uh, and more recently, of course, in Israel. Um, and so whilst we we're already working on countermeasures to those, we also wanted to switch a bit of focus to how do we counter both ground-based vehicles and water-based. So it's air, water and ground. And then finally, as you mentioned, uh, we had the Robotic and Autonomous, sorry, the uh, Army Robotics Expo. Um, that uh, really is an opportunity for a couple of things. So we invite uh, industry of all shapes and sizes to come and show uh, their robots or their robotic systems or their sensors or their compute or their comms or something that helps us uh, get after that range of technology. And the purpose really is in a very democratic way. So everybody has the same size stand, regardless of the size of company, uh, to be able to access defense senior leaders who can wander around in a, uh, in a curiosity kind of mindset and, and have conversations about what, what is being shown, um, where industry can sort of outline where they think they're going with their uh, technology offering and you know they get some sort of immediate feedback from a senior leadership perspective about well maybe that's not as valuable as you think it might be or actually that is really valuable really appreciate that's how uh, some of this technology was so that that senior leadership industry engagement with you know sort of in a stripped back way i think is is really powerful and then i think that the second um, intended consequence, but perhaps more impactful than we realized, is the sort of collaboration that happens between the industry partner participants. Um, you know, we get lots of stories about, oh, I've, I've been looking for a thing. And then lo and behold, three stands down is a person producing the thing I'm looking for. And so you, you get the buzz of, hey, we're going to work together on this to bring, you know, bring up the level of performance or satisfy a particular problem they've been solving. So that networking um, and collaboration elements, whilst we thought it would happen, actually is probably more impactful that, than we thought. So all of those, you know, the three kind of um, expo events, if you like, and then the, uh, the conference is the Chief of Army Symposium. Okay, and is this an annual event? So, uh, yeah. well, we've ran the Robotics Expo for three years in a row. Uh, we have run the Quantum Challenge for three years in a row. And Army Innovation Day has been an annual event for oh, probably eight to ten years, perhaps. Even. So um, they, they are currently uh, run in that format. I'm not sure whether we'll run the Robotics Expo uh, in the way that we did um, this year. Uh, that's subject to a discussion. I'm quite keen to um, move some of this stuff out into the real world environment and do some uh, live experimentation, if you like. Um, and so we might approach things slightly differently for the Robotics Expo. Uh, but I think the other two, given their format, I think will probably be the same way. And then we'll go back to the Expo format you know, we'll do it sort of between a field activity, expo activity. Um, I had quite a few people when I mentioned to them that I was coming um, to this event, you know, especially robotic companies going, oh, they didn't know about it and they wanted to be part of it. Uh, what is your advice to them for the future? Yeah, so uh, my advice is to keep a lookout on Oztender um, because that tends to be where we post it. We worked quite hard this year with the, uh, the Defence Industry Network, uh, with ODIS, 
to try and get our message out because we know uh, from our experience in the first year that the message perhaps hadn't got out quite as widely as we had hoped. Um, and so we, you know, we're trying to cast the net wider. Of course, we'll seek guidance and help from the Robotics Australia group too, in terms of uh, advertising that. So, you know, there's an opportunity there for, for people just to be able to know that registration is open. Um, but as I say, I think for 2024, we probably will run a field activity, so it'll be a more targeted event, but still we need to cast the net wide. So the, the principle still works regardless. And most certainly we'd be happy to facilitate and get the message out there for you. I actually watched a, um, one of the panels at Steve Baxter. Any Anytime you mention his name, you know there's going to be a bit of controversy because he's nothing if he's very direct and doesn't pull his punches. He seemed to think there was a problem with a bit of bottleneck of funds getting to the companies. And we do, when I say we, this could apply to everyone, this fear of failure, um, you know, they're not going to invest in, unless they know specifically this is going to be a, a success. What do you think of this? Um, you know, Steve, Steve, you know, has a view. Um, uh, and I think his view is based on, you know, the knowledge uh, that he has. I think he comes at things from a um, from an angle of, you know, speed, uh, taking the opportunity that comes uh, from moving at speed. Um, and I think in you know early stages, uh, it's more straightforward to be able to take risk um, and move faster. But in uh, you know larger scale procurement, um, I think there is a requirement, certainly from expending Commonwealth funds and delivery of military capability, which is greater than just the equipment. You know, as I mentioned before, is the training, the sustainment, and all the other elements that make the system a whole, including how it integrates with other systems. You have to go into that in a deliberate, uh, coherent fashion. That doesn't necessarily mean slow, but it does mean that it's got to be done in an appropriate way, or you risk delivering something that everybody loves, but doesn't kind of fit. Um, and so we've got to try and get that balance right. And so, you know, from a venture capital perspective, it's about, you know, rapid return on investment. From a military perspective, it's about, you know, impactful and um, organized technology uh, to give us an asymmetric advantage or to or to maintain uh, our freedom of maneuver into conflict so they're, they're slightly different kind of outcomes um, but I think you know you would have seen from the DSR there is a desire to move faster to accelerate the capability acquisition process because there are elements of the process that could be refined and that work is ongoing right now um, and also, um, you know, the creation of ASCA uh, system to replace the, the Defence Innovation Hub and the Next Gen Technology Fund, I think is also indicative, you know, Defence's desire to, to be more rapid in both its discovery and then onboarding. So I think, I think his, his point is well made to a degree, uh, but I would say that I think Defence is also moving. You recently did a demonstrations of your capabilities. I believe the weather was just not cooperating. Tell us a little bit about the day. Oh gosh, yes. Uh, so we um, we run capability demonstrations really to um, help to bring the technology to life in that sort of um, battle battlefield type setting. So we set about trying to um, uh, converge three ideas. So first was the autonomous leader follower, which was the autonomous uh, vehicle convoy we were intending to trial on public road uh, in Victoria as part of a simulated mission, which was sort of the final phase of the project. Um, we also have been advancing our armoured personnel carrier, our autonomous armoured personnel carrier fleet. We call them the optionally crewed combat vehicle, OCCV. Um, and we've been bringing um, some uh, new capabilities uh, to that. And then 
we were also keen to see whether we could um, bring together um, drone swarming, um, but moving away from the small smart many and into the small dumb many. So centrally controlled, but they can still give you. Um, and so we decided to to do that uh, at Pakaponyol um, in winter. And uh, the, you know, the eternal optimist that the RICO team are. Um, and so we were able to, you know, successfully do uh, the road trials with, you know, great support from Roads Victoria, the uh, National Transport Research Organization uh, and or Deakin University. That, that all went uh, pretty well. Um, we were effectively doing what we wanted to do with the optionally crewed combat vehicles, um, pushing the envelope a little bit with um, EOS and Platt, uh, our partners. Um, and then through uh, Mirogen, uh, trying to do the drone swarm. Um, the weather was horrific. Um, and so as we sort of moved towards the evening uh, demonstration, we, we were all pretty uh, wet. Visibility was pretty poor. Um, but we decided to have, a, to have a go with the demonstration that we wanted to run anyway. Um, and I found myself providing a commentary on, uh, well, if you look to your front, you'll see this happening. And uh, lo and behold, A, you couldn't see it, but B, it wasn't happening either. Um, and uh, yeah, so it was somewhat confronting to uh, stand in front of your two up boss and say, well, you haven't really seen anything that I've said you'd see. Uh, haven't really been wasting my time out here. And thanks for flying down from Canberra to uh, to Pagapanyol. Um but I think what it did show was, uh, you know, you, you always learn from things not going quite to plan and dare I say failure. Um, and uh, the next night we, we succeeded in what we wanted to achieve. Um, but we took away a number of learnings about, you know, the, you know, the resilience and robustness of uh, robotic systems. Um, we, you know, they, were pro they are prototypes, so it, it wasn't a huge surprise. There were some glitches, um, but it help us, helps us to focus on what parts we need to fix, um, but also where there's opportunity, because if the technology doesn't work for us, it doesn't work for potential as well. So, you know, could we, uh, well, we did learn from it, but what can we learn from it about how we counter potentially adversary systems such as the ones? Yeah. Um, and if nothing, the war, as you said, in Ukraine, in Israel now is demonstrating a lot of technical capabilities and um, in some instance, very basic rudimentary um, drones that are, you're not looking to retrieve them. They're there just for one purpose. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's sort of, uh, I guess people have always talked about robotic systems as, you know, uh, removing humans from danger and harm, which means that they're exposed to that danger and harm. And therefore, you should reasonably expect that some of your robotic systems are, aren't going to survive um, a particular phase of a conflict and so on. But I think cost has been something of a um, as a hindrance to that. Um, so, you know, land autonomy, as I mentioned, is difficult. And so the sensor suite that you need to replicate what a human can do is is generally quite expensive. Um, and so the, the idea of consumable robots hasn't perhaps been as rapid as we might have thought, but I think you're starting to see. Yeah. What do you see the role of robotics in the army going forward? Um, well, there are a number of different roles, uh, I guess, from um, if you read the RAS strategy, actually, it's, it gives you a really good insight into that. But, you know, there's, a, I guess there's two ways I would answer that. Firstly, there's a We've created a framework uh, which you would see in the strategy about enhance, augment, replace. And so they're not necessarily a sequence, but in some cases we might use robotics to enhance a system we already have. Um, we may use robotics uh, and or autonomy to augment a system, to give it some extra functionality. And then finally, you might replace that, what was previously a crude system uh, with a completely robotic system. And they're, they're choices and design parameters. 
The RAS strategy also highlights uh, those five offsets. And so, you know, on the one hand, uh, that we talk about lightening the cognitive and physical load of our soldiers. And here we're focused on the sort of dismounted combatant. Um, if you see soldiers, uh, they generally carry a lot of kit um, and, and that kit is is not going away. So, you know, they need more batteries than ever before. They need water, they need food and so on. So there's a sort of irreducible minimum of kit that needs to be carried. And then they tend to take a uh, special to mission kit as well. A, an example, but not necessarily a great one, a ladder, for example. So the ability to use robotic systems to lighten that physical load by putting the kit onto the vehicle and having a vehicle accompany you on a task. You'll have seen quite a lot of that, those uncrewed ground vehicles um, in social media. Uh, we're also looking at how we lighten their cognitive load. How do we feed them data so that they are freed from other tasks, such as navigation, for example. So you don't have to map read because inbuilt into perhaps a, a vision system is, is the direction of path you need to go. Um, you could also have, you know, where your teammates are, where the enemy are, where their emergency RV is and so on. So enlightening just a bit of that cognitive load potentially off the soldier. We're also looking at robotics uh, from a robotics process automation perspective and, you know, non-physical systems potentially to help make better decisions. And that's at that sort of headquarters level. Uh, you know, how can we um, how can we fuse data together to create a rich picture of what's going on? So the human is doing the decision, whereas the computer is doing the slightly tedious data fusion elements. And we've done some work on uh, natural language process models uh, about how we listen to voice nets. Uh, and transcribe that uh, into data and then get insights from the data. Uh, we're looking at robotic systems, the traditional dull, dirty, dangerous, um, you know, digging holes in the ground, it's pretty dull, good to get a robot to do it, probably, um, or almost certainly, in fact, um, there's probably listeners who have those systems, um, you know, so that, that sort of, uh, I guess, uh, force protection type role. We're also looking at how uh, we can use robotic systems to generate mass um, and scalable effects, it's called in the in the RAS strategy. And here, you know, for a modest size army that we are, the ability to um, you know disperse our effects through robotic systems and teaming uh, ideas such as optionally crewing. So for some phases of an operation, it's critical you have a human operating a system intimately. And for other phases, you know, you just want to use the the robotic system uh, at distance where it's maybe in a particularly dangerous task or in a role that um, you want to retain your human workforce doing something else. So, for example, with the OCCVs that I mentioned before, in those roles such as casualty evacuation. So you could put a casualty in the back and using its GPS waypoint navigation, send it back to a, a collection point for casualty um, and then return back to them again. And that way, using your human workforce to drive uh, or in a, in a defensive or an attacking position, the first contact. Um, and I guess finally, in terms of the benefits, we're looking you know, at our logistic systems, um, our medical and our maintenance systems, and how we might um, make those uh, more efficient. Um, and uh, the leader follower is an example of, of that in action. So, you know, the rate limiting factor of transport generally is the operator or the crew. Um, uh, the example I use in the leader follower sense is a, a two person crew in a truck can probably operate for nine hours each a day, that's 18 hours a day, which means for six hours a day or 25% of the day, you can't really use the truck unless you have a greater number of crewmen. Uh, or um, you could use autonomy. And that's part of the principle of what we were testing with leader. Uh, equally, though, there are times where the transport task is uh, too demanding for robotic systems. And what you might want to do then is the slightly slightly less exciting driving is done by the um, by the robotic system. And then that means you retain your human workforce for the really cross-country in contact. So those, there's a whole range of different 
uh, opportunities to to get those offsets from robots of all shapes and sizes both flying. And can I safely assume that all armies or military in the world are doing exactly what Australia is doing? They're all testing this capability, they're all building it, and are you um, collaborating with them, obviously with people that are friendly to Australia? Yeah, look, absolutely. Um, so um, some are more advanced than others. I think in some places we're more advanced. Um, and um, there are many uh, challenges to uh, overcome, as I say, particularly for the land environment. But the collaboration is pretty strong. So, you know, unsurprising, you know, we're quite well connected with our US and UK uh, opposite numbers, both in the US Army and the US Marine Corps. Indeed, we're, we're doing some trials with them next year. Um, I've got a member of my team currently in the UK uh, with their uh, team w- working on some some trials that they're doing right now. Um, one of our projects uh, was taken into the AUKUS trial that was done in the UK earlier this year. And there was an autonomous air ground teaming uh, project that we're running with the Boeing Phantom. We're continuing that now. And so we are really keen as those sort of um, AUKUS and Five Eyes nations to share um, so that we're not duplicating or repeating the same thing and getting insights from, from the, you know, accepting this technology, you know, robotics are not new, but the way that we want to apply them, I think is still quite emerging and the, and the amount and level of autonomy that's needed to achieve those outcomes is, is also still emerging. And so whilst, you know, there have been robots for a really long time, um, their, their capability and the expectation of their capability is growing all of, and if we want to get that, uh, those benefits that I sort of talked about before, we've got to continue to, to develop it. Yeah, and I think as the landscape changes, and we'll probably um, close on this, as the landscape changes, your robots are solving a problem. Um, and that's what they're really good for. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think there's a general, uh, as a general rule, a lot of people apply, approach robotics with a kind of fairly open view uh, where, you know, robots could do everything. Well, they can, but they'll be optimized for the task that you want them for. And, you know, if you visit a factory that has, you know, robots in, they tend to do one task. Uh, they're very good at it and they do it, you know, over and over again to an exquisite level of performance. For an army, for the military, you know, we exist in an environment which has got a lot of uncertainty. It changes very rapidly. Um, and so, you know, making the balance between, a you know, a perfect robot um, that does only one thing to a robot that does a range of things pretty well um you know we've got to try and get that balance right and of course depending what it does depends on how uh, willing you are for a bit of deviation from what you expect it to do so if it's supposed to deliver a um you know some resupply to you and it's it's inaccurate by about 10 meters well that's probably not a big deal um but if it's you know delivering um uh, logistics from the air and it's inaccurate by five kilometers, then, yeah, that's more problematic potential. So we've got to try and get that back. Yeah. Robin, I'm extremely, extremely grateful for your time. Any closing thoughts that you'd like to leave our audience with? Um, well, thank you very much, uh, Nikki, for having me on today. Um, I guess there's a couple of things, really. Uh, firstly, I made this sort of point earlier, but, you know, Army is becoming increasingly technical. Uh, and as we look to the future, you know, we're going to need and want to recruit more and more technical people. So if people are thinking about the Army or defence, rather, uh, as a career and they're kind of technical minded, don't overlook your moving. In it. Uh, and then secondly, I guess, just to, I guess, reassure people that, you know, we're approaching the application of this technology. Uh, we're conscious of what it means to use artificial intelligence and robotics together and our responsibility uh, that sit behind. So um, we part of the purpose of testing and understanding is to really understand those edge cases and where size. So, yeah, I think uh, it's a really exciting time uh, to be in 
army in particular. Um, and as we look to the future, I think it's only more interested in robotics, which most of your listeners should be, I guess. Yes. Um, should anyone want to contact you? I've always had the sort of idea that um, the army is highly secretive, but it's not so. You can find everyone on LinkedIn. Um, so which that just amazes me. I thought, oh, no, you want to hide all these individuals, but seemingly not. So where can someone reach you? Uh, so I am on LinkedIn. Um, so my name is Robin Smith. And um, yeah, and as I mentioned before, through the uh, Rico web page, there's also... Fantastic. Thank you so much, Robin. And to our audience, uh, thank you for joining us again today. Uh, I hope you enjoyed the episode and wherever you are in the world, stay well and safe. Mm-hmm.